Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim, you came back. I did. I'm under contract. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, thanks for showing up and uh, hi to everyone else for uh, tuning into the second episode of uh, Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast. Last time we heard the prologue, so <clears throat> I'm guessing... We're just jumping right into chapter one of the ambitious card. Am I right on that? You're you're tracking perfectly. Yes, we're going to do that. But before that, we have a special guest, a magician named Rob Zabrecki. Now, I know you have not had a chance to ever see Rob. I got to see him at the Genie Bash convention in uh, Orlando. It was sort of his first East Coast appearance, uh, and he blew everyone away. He's sort of like if Charles Adams had created uh, a magician character, he would have created... Uh, what Rob does on stage. It's very funny, very odd, quite singular. Uh, There's really no one else like him. Uh, He's an interesting fellow because he was actually in the band Possum Dixon uh, for the first half of his career until his late 20s. And then he got into magic uh, in a small way and then in a big way and totally changed careers and uh, now makes his living as a magician and an actor. And one of his claims to fame is he does the Houdini seance at the Magic Castle. I, 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 I would give my left arm to see that show. I've been to the Magic Castle only once, and it was fantastic. Uh, but boy, I would love to see the Houdini seance. Yeah, I think he's one of, I want to say, four or five people who've done it over the years. And he's he's adjusted it to his own personality. But they've also, my understanding is they've seriously upgraded uh, the effects in it. So it is it is quite an event. Uh, and the reason we're talking to Rob today is because uh, in this first chapter of The Ambitious Card, Eli is taking his uncle's place and is going to a, a, a live taping of a TV show in the Wabashaw Caves, which we talked about last time. Uh, and in that live taping is a guy who presents himself as a true psychic, a mentalist psychic who can talk to the other side. And Eli has been brought in to sort of uh, be the the loyal opposition. And throughout that first chapter there, there's mention of the term skeptic, which is what Eli prefers, and debunker, which is what they keep calling him. And since there probably was no better example of someone who is both a skeptic and a debunker than Houdini, I thought, why not talk to Rob, uh, who can tell us about those two terms and what they meant in Houdini's world. So uh, let's go talk to Rob. Let's. Do you see there a difference between being a skeptic and a debunker? Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, like Houdini's probably the best example, although he was he was called both in I've seen in in print referred to as, as both of those things, but you, you do the, the deep dive on Houdini and you learn that he wanted to believe all along. He this is something he he really wanted. And unfortunately, uh, he never found any proof of, uh, of, of the afterlife. But man, if, if anyone searched, um, you know, it was, definitely, it was definitely Houdini. I mean, he went as far as, as, as you may well know to, to costume himself. Uh, he worked with Scientific American Magazine when they were offering $10,000 to anyone who could produce uh, genuine you know, spiritualistic phenomena and uh, debunked Marjorie, who was uh, known as the Boston medium. There's a big scandal there. Would you consider yourself a skeptic as well? Where do you stand on that? Oh, firmly on, (laughs) uh, I I think you get one life uh, and it's here, the one that you and I are mutually 
I think experiencing, if my perceptions are correct at this point in time in my existence. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't believe in it. I love the world of the 1920 seance, that parlor world of, of these very crooked people, uh, you know, taking money from innocent people who had lost loved ones in World War I and in the pandemic of 1918. People were flocking to the seance rooms because they, so many people were lost and, and there were so many gypsies and, and crooks and thieves out there saying, hey, for $50, I can reach your husband or your, your brother Jim or your your daughter or whoever. I mean, it was, you know, as you, you probably know, this was a this was a very mainstream thing. Seances were being done in the White House. The Lincolns were putting these on, you know, they were hosting seances. So it was a it was a really commercial thing. And and I just find that that world so fascinating. For 10 years I ran the the Houdini seance at the Magic Castle and the one line before going into the dark seance, which is of course very theatrical and spooky and fun and appeals a certain aesthetic that, that people you know love is is the line i when i say if you believe you will receive and and it's the last thing i like to just kind of give everyone that that, that million mile stare and then the lights come down and <laughs> now hey i get i get you know what the truth is when when all the lights are out my house and something i hear a sound in the other room i kind of Maybe for a second I do believe in yeah. something or or a predator. I don't know. How often do you run into someone when doing the Houdini seance who, when it's over, uh, is convinced it was real? Yeah, okay, that's a good question. Um, the, the answer is too often because the fact that it happens at all is astonishing to me. Uh, primarily because if you know the Houdini seance experience at the Magic Castle... It is Disneyland in the 1960s. So, you know, it's a it's a real sh it's a real show, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's fooling anyone. But what does fool people is this idea in their head that oh, we're going to a séance tonight at the Magic Castle. So suddenly, again, if you believe, you will receive. There's the, the, you know this idea of getting dressed up and going to a séance, and they they enter this beautiful Victorian séance chamber. And this dark figure, me, comes out and is quite frankly strange. And he, I do a bunch of close-up magic that appears real. And it, so, so it, it, it starts off very strange and very spooky. And I do a, you know, um, a handful of spiritualistic uh, close-up effects. So this all seems like there might be, if, you know, there might be something here for this. So people that want to believe that there's going to be something here. However, when the lights come down and the dark seance happens, that we know is a put on. So at the end of this, people refer to the beginning and go, well, boy, how could he have known that? And how, how, did, how could that have happened? And can I talk to you for a second? Can you, can you come here? Would you come to my house next week in Beverly Hills and can I pay you $500 to contact Uncle Jerry? And that is the moment where, <laughs> You know, I very quickly lift the veil and say, "No, I can't. Uh, this is this. I, I'm doing this for entertainment. This is a This is a very theatrical uh, uh, experience for myself, and, and I'm glad you had that too. But if you're looking for someone to, 
you know, go to bat to, to try to find the other side. I'm not, I'm not the, the guy to do that. So that's Rob Zarecki. Well, what do you think, great. Jim? That's just fascinating to me. Uh, you know, as a guy who does a seance show on occasion, um, that idea of skeptic versus debunker versus, you know, the real thing and whether an audience completely buys it or not is I think that's the crux of the biscuit for me. Anyway, I don't, if, as Rob said, if somebody comes up to me and says, could you come to my, you know, no, obviously I'm going to then tell them, you know, this whole thing is just a show. I just did a show for you and let's be cool with that. Uh, but I do want to, I'm never going to say that unless I'm pushed up against the wall by somebody wanting me to, uh, you know, help them solve some sort of ghost problem that they have. I want my audience to, to be in a place all the time where they're not sure if what they saw was actual ghost phenomena or what, what just happened here. That's where I want to live. And so hearing him talk about that, fascinating to me. Do you, in, in your spook shows, have you had people come up afterwards and say, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is there Absolutely. any particular one that sticks out in your memory? Uh, you know, it happens almost every night it, it, that people will want to chat with me about um, some sort of ghostly experience that they've had or are having or, uh, you know, do is there, could you? And so it, it happens almost every night. I think of it this way. If somebody buys a ticket to a show that I'm doing called The Phantom's Feast, they they're buying a ticket for a particular experience. I don't want to, I, I want to give them that experience and I don't want to take it away again at the end by saying, ha ha, it was all just a joke unless they force me to do that. If somebody really, you know, is looks to me like they're in some sort of pain and they're coming to me for help, then I'm going to put the brakes on pretty quickly. And I, I, I don't want to take the fun away unless they force me to. In large part, I want people to think this place is haunted. And I, I want that to be part of the experience of the show. We're in a haunted, this is a haunted hall that we're in. And I'm going to tell you the stories about the ghosts that are in this hall. And then stuff will happen and we'll all wonder what we just experienced. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and this is what uh, Eli's dealing with in this first chapter, the idea of being a skeptic versus being a debunker. So with that, pick up your book, Jim, turn to chapter one, and let's read chapter one of The Ambitious Card. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter one. I find it puzzling, don't you? The rabbit, I mean, very puzzling. As a magician, I'm accustomed to people asking me about rabbits. However, in this particular instance, I wasn't being queried about your standard pink-nosed adorable bunny suitable for producing out of a hat. My uncle was instead gesturing toward a large statue of a rabbit reclining on the grass. Perhaps five feet tall, the dull bronze artwork gazed out at the cars as they passed by on the Minnehaha Parkway, a look of Mona Lisa-style contentment on its large metallic face. "'Explain this to me if you can,' Uncle Harry continued without waiting for any response from me. 
Is the statue meant to represent an oversized version of a normal-sized rabbit? Or was the artist instead attempting to create a normal-sized depiction of a freakishly large rabbit? I sorted through his questions in my head. I guess I've never thought about it, I finally answered. Harry clucked his tongue. If we understand the context within which he or she was working, then I imagine we'd have a better handle on it. It's never about what they're doing. It's always about why. He gave the rabbit one more penetrating look as we drove past. As a professional magician, these are the questions you should be thinking about, he added in his professional tone. Perhaps it's my imagination, but as he's gotten older, Harry's list of the questions I should be thinking about has grown exponentially. And to be honest, given recent events, I must admit that I haven't really made any attempt to keep up with his list. At this point, I'm probably hopelessly behind. I made a left turn on Chicago Avenue, and we headed away from Minnehaha Parkway, driving the final two blocks home in reflective silence. I pulled into an open parking space across the street from the small shop that serves as both our abode and our business. Chicago Magic is the store, and surprisingly, it's a good 350 miles from the Windy City, nestled instead in a cozy neighborhood in South Minneapolis. The shop has been a fixture near the corner of 48th and Chicago for nearly 50 years. I've called the apartments above it my home, on and off, for just over 20 years, or since I was about 10. For those of you unwilling or unable to do the math, that would put me in my early 30s. Uncle Harry gathered up the plastic shopping bag that slumped at his feet. The bag was filled to near overflowing with candy bars of all varieties, and not the dreaded fun-size candy bar which Harry loathes. Where's the fun in a candy bar the size of your thumb? That's about as much fun as a poke in the eye, if you ask me. No, these were genuine full-sized bars, and they would join the other equally large bag we purchased two days earlier in anticipation of the supposed hordes of trick-or-treaters Harry was convinced would be visiting us that evening. Harry is a man who does not like to be caught unprepared, and Halloween fuels his already competitive nature. For years, he's ranted about our business neighbors, the movie theater on one side of the store and the bar on the other, and their alleged stinginess in the matter of dispensing Halloween candy to the neighborhood children. Any business that charges an arm and two legs for a bag of popcorn, he would often say of the movie theater, and then turns around and hands out minuscule candy bars at Halloween... That, to me, is a business with the heart the size of a gumdrop. And don't get me started with that bar, he would continue, gesturing toward what is actually a favorite hangout of his. I swear to God, those cheap so-and-sos are handing out ice cubes instead of candy. I've seen them do it. They hold a bowl or something high enough over the kid's head so they can't see inside of it, and then plop, 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 they toss ice cubes into the poor youngster's bag, saying, Enjoy your Snickers bar and happy Halloween, kids. That, if you ask me, is lower than low. Halloween had been a favorite holiday for Aunt Alice, and because this was the first occurrence of the holiday since her passing, I think Harry was overcompensating. 
I got the sense he was using the delivery of treats to random, roaming, costume-clad kids as a sort of living memorial to her and their fifty-plus years together. But I sympathized with the feeling, so when he had insisted on making yet another run to the store that afternoon for more candy, I quickly agreed and even offered to drive. As soon as the car came to a stop across from our shop, he opened the door and got out, turning back to reach in and pick up the bulging bag of candy bars. "'Aren't you coming in?' he asked when he recognized that I hadn't turned off the engine. I shook my head. "'I've got that show in St. Paul to get to,' I said, picking up a Snickers bar that had escaped from the bag and fallen to the seat. I handed it to Harry, and he skillfully slipped it back into the bag, making it vanish from his hand. It was a good trick, but he did it without even realizing he had done it. Force a habit, I guess. Oh, that's right, he said, giving the side of his head a slight tap with his index finger. Thanks for covering me on that show. I'm just not up to it. I understand. No problem, I said, not wanting to make a big deal out of it. He started to close the car door, then ducked his head back down for one last comment. Give me hell, Buster and then he closed the door. I watched him as he waited for a couple of cars to pass and then tentatively made his way across the street to our shop. He glanced up at the sky as he slipped the key into the front door lock, looking to see if the snow that had been threatening for the last couple of days was any closer to becoming a reality. A few moments later, the door was unlocked and he disappeared inside. And two seconds after that, a hand turned the sign that hangs in the window around so that it now read, Open. Chicago Magic was open for business and ready for trick-or-treaters. And I had to get to the Psychic Showdown, a mental cage match as it was being advertised in St. Paul. But before I go, I thought, where's the harm in a quick interlude? I pulled the car forward about 30 feet, which put me directly across from the shop on the corner, a mere four doors down from Chicago Magic. I pretended to be very interested in something on the car's dashboard, adjusting an invisible knob. And then slowly, oh, so slowly, I turned my head to the left and looked across the street. Bingo. I spotted her immediately, standing by the cash register and talking to a customer. Her face was slightly obscured by her curly brown hair. Then she laughed and tossed her hair back, revealing that sweet, lovely face. She was gorgeous. It was evident even from this distance, clear across the street and through a fog of incense that hung around inside the store like, well, a fog. I watched her for several long moments with what I'm sure was a look of puppy-dog infatuation on my face until I reached a point where I was even starting to creep myself out. I said her name softly, like a sigh. Megan, then put the car in gear and headed over to St. Paul. The bluffs that border the riverfront across the waterway from downtown St. Paul are famous for their caves, miles of caverns and circuitous tunnels that cut deep into the tall rocky hills. The best known of these caves, and the only ones open to the public, are the Wabashaw Street Caves, which began their career as a mining site for valuable sandstone before becoming a private Prohibition-era nightclub. The caves had gone through several permutations since that time, finally evolving into a rental space for parties and events. 
I'd only been there once previously, years before, at a spooky magic show presented by a student of my uncle's. Although the event taught me nothing new about magic, I did learn one thing about the caves that night that has stuck with me ever since. When the lights go out in a cave, it's dark. I mean, dark, dark. Stygian darkness. Darker, as my uncle was fond of saying, than the inside of a nun. It was immediately apparent that darkness wasn't going to be an issue inside the caves that evening as I stepped into the steady flow of people making their way through the large wooden doors that framed the front entrance. The inside of the place was lit up like a crystal chandelier with extra lighting courtesy of a TV crew that had moved in and completely taken over the main room. Inside, t-shirted crew members with headsets and clipboards scurried around as staff in charge of crowd control moved the people through the foyer into the rows of folding chairs that had been set up in the main room. I was instantly reminded that this was a Halloween event when I recognized that many in the crowd had come in costume, ranging from something as simple as a funny hat to one fellow who was dressed like the Gorn Captain, that shabby, shambling lizard from the old Star Trek series. As the crowd slowly shuffled forward around me, I spotted a young woman wearing a black PBS t-shirt, blacker lipstick, a headset, and a determined expression. Excuse me, I said as I lightly tapped her on the shoulder, making the assumption that she wasn't in costume but was in fact in uniform. She turned and looked at me, holding up one finger on her right hand while she pressed her headset closer to her head with her left, trying to hear above all the conversations in the cramped, echoing space. Uh-huh, she said into the mouthpiece. Roger that. She lowered her right finger, giving me the go-ahead to speak. Yes? Hi, uh, I'm Eli Marks. I'm in the show tonight. She quickly paged through the stack of multicolored sheets on her clipboard, then spoke into the mouthpiece again. I've got the debunker with me. Where should I put him? Actually, the term uh, debunker is not one I... She held up that one finger again as she listened intently to her headset. She nodded and then turned and pushed her way through the crowd, glancing back over her shoulder as she did. Follow me, she yelled, and then she dove further into the throng. I excused and pardoned my way through the packed foyer as I did my best to keep the crew member in sight. As we neared the entrance to the main room, she veered to the right, past the restrooms, and then made a left, bringing us into a new room that was literally cavernous. A long bar ran against one wall, and the far end of the room revealed an archway entrance to another similar room. If I was remembering correctly from my one visit to the caves, that cavern connected to another cavern, which in turn connected back to the main cavern, which connected to the foyer we had just left, creating a circle of interconnected caverns. This particular space was currently unoccupied, with the exception of a tall, rail-thin woman with spiky red hair standing by the bar. She was digging through what looked like a large fishing tackle box. Next to her were two lights on stands which were directed at a high canvas-backed chair. Ricky Martin screamed Living La Vida Loca from a portable iPod speaker system on the bar. I've got one who's ready for makeup, the crew member barked over the music. He's on last, so no rush. Great, the spiky-haired woman said. What's the time? The crew member looked at her watch, which hung on a braided lanyard around her neck. 
We go live in 25 minutes, she said as she spun around and headed back the way she had come. As she left the cavern, her hand went up to the headset on her ear and I could hear her say, Debunkers in makeup. And then she was gone. I'm Lauren, the spiky-haired woman said, taking a makeup bib off the chair and gesturing for me to have a seat. Her voice was husky and rich, the distinctive sound of a former or current smoker. I'm Eli, I said as I settled into the chair. She fastened the bib around my neck, yanking and tugging it until it was positioned to her satisfaction. So, Eli, what's a debunker and why do you hate that term so much? She ran a warm hand quickly through my hair and then turned and began rummaging through the tackle box. From my new vantage point, I could see that instead of hooks, worms, and bobbers, the box was full of makeup supplies. Powders, eyeliners, lipsticks, brushes, tubes, and small bottles I couldn't identify were neatly arranged in the box's tiers. How do you know I hate that term? She gave a little laugh. (laughs) Body language. They say that 95% of human communication is done via body language. Really? Well, she shrugged, I made up the number, but I stand by the concept. She turned back from the makeup case, having found a shade of powder that pleased her. She placed one hand over my eyes, while the soft, feathery brush in her other hand gave my face a quick dusting. The song on the iPod speaker switched from Ricky Martin to an aria from an opera that I almost recognized. This was either an eclectic playlist or the machine was set on shuffle. So, what's a debunker? she asked again. Well, I said, settling into my well-practiced description, in the world of psychics, mystics, and the supernatural, a debunker is someone who vehemently believes that all otherworldly occurrences are bogus and they can always be explained by a simple scientific explanation. And that's not what you do? She pushed lightly on my forehead to get me to tip my head back as she deftly applied some powder to my neck. Well, I'd like to think so. Debunkers are often as fanatical as the people they oppose. I've always preferred the term skeptic. And that means what? She replaced the makeup brush in the tackle box and produced a comb and what appeared to be a can of hairspray. That means that I approach each situation with an open mind. I don't immediately assume that every supernatural occurrence isn't simply a natural occurrence that has been misunderstood or faked in some way. Ever come across one that wasn't? Not yet, but I'm keeping an open mind. Well, keep that mind open, but do me a favor and shut those baby blues for just a second. I closed my eyes and heard the hiss of the hairspray and felt the sharp tug of her comb as she attempted to give my unruly mop of hair a bit of well-needed discipline. When I opened my eyes, I was surprised to see a deck of playing cards fanned out in front of my face. Pick a card. Any card. The cards fanned, dipped for a moment, and I recognized Pete's face behind the cards. Before I go any further, I want to go on record here and say that I like Pete. I really do. He's a swell guy, but there are two things that have me deeply, perhaps fatally, conflicted in my feelings toward him. The first is that Pete is trying to learn magic. That's an unsightly thing to observe for anyone, but it's particularly gruesome for a professional magician. The other, somewhat larger reason I'm conflicted about Pete is that I'm in love with his wife, Megan. Which really isn't his fault, but there you go. 
And although I can fall back on the excuse that they're getting a divorce and all's fair in love and war, the truth is, I had no idea they were getting a divorce when I first started to fall for her. If it makes any difference, for the record, she hardly knows I exist. Come on, pick a card, free choice. Pete held the fan deck closer, swaying his clasped hands from side to side in his sad attempt at what I suspected was intended to be an enticing manner. What are you doing here? I asked, completely mystified. I was having one of those out-of-context experiences. Pete and his soon-to-be ex-wife, Megan, owned the row of shops on the corner of 48th and Chicago that includes Chicago Magic. I'm very used to seeing him around the neighborhood, and I see far too much of him in the shop, but I was completely taken aback to encounter him and his ubiquitous deck of cards here in the caves. I've got a client who owns this place. They're trying to unload it. Interested? He switched effortlessly into realtor mode. I mean, think about it. This place would make a killer magic emporium. Sure, but what would we do with the other 95% of the space? You're probably right. There's way too much square footage here. He pushed the fan cards at me once again. I think I got this sucker nailed finally. Go ahead, pick a card. I acquiesced reluctantly and pulled a card from the center of the fan deck, showing it to Lauren. Now, look at the card, Pete said as he fumbled to square the deck. He glanced up at us. Oh, you already did. Good for you. Well done. Okay, now, remember that card. I want you to put your randomly chosen card back into the deck, anywhere in the deck, This is a free choice that I'm not influencing in any manner whatsoever. He lost track of his sentence as he began to drop the cards in a slow shower from his right hand, which hovered about eight inches above his left. Say stop wherever you like. Stop, I said, trying my best to put a modicum of interest into my voice. He stopped dropping cards from one hand to the other and indicated that I should put the card on top of the messy stack in his left hand. I did and he then continued to drop the cards in a painfully slow and awkward manner until all of the cards were in his left hand. He struggled to square the cards again, as he said in an overly practiced manner. Now, to keep things fair, I'll cut the cards. Pete executed a sloppy cut, followed by a second, even sloppier one. I looked up at Lauren, who was watching with a look of sick fascination on her face. I looked back at Pete, who was attempting to roll the top card off the deck with an awkward thumb and finger flip combination. It was obscene. And here's your card, right? He asked, hopefully, offering the top card for our inspection. Both Lauren and I shook our heads silently. Really? We nodded sadly as Lauren unsnapped the clasp on the makeup bib and pulled it off of me. Pete began to sort through the cards, trying to trace his fatal misstep. I think I screwed up the cut, he said. I think you did, I said as I stood up. I turned to Lauren. Are you done with me? She smiled. Have a good show. Thanks. And keep an open mind? She gave me a quick smile and turned back to her makeup kit, repacking materials and getting ready for her next victim. I clapped Pete on the shoulder and turned him toward the archway that led to the foyer. Come on, Houdini. You can watch the show with me. I must have screwed up the cut, he repeated as we headed out of one cavern and into another. Excuse me, they said up front that Mr. Marks could be found back there. Did you happen to see him? The question was tossed at us by a costumed character who looked a whole lot like the Mad Hatter without the hat. 
The eccentric character tossed his question over his shoulder as he marched purposefully past us. Pete and I were headed back through the foyer and toward the main room where the last of the crowd was taking their seats. The fellow with the question wore a rich purple tailcoat and colorful plaid pants cut in a style popular back in the late 1970s. This ensemble was accessorized with a paisley silk scarf tied snugly around his neck. He was tall, thin, and long-legged with an angular face and wild hair that must have been tinted at some point in the past as I could detect a trace of blue in it as he moved past us. If you're looking for Mr. Marks, that's me. I said. He stopped in his tracks about ten feet from us and turned, tilting his head to one side curiously. Interesting, he said, in what was either a British accent or a deep-seated affectation. I don't know why, but for some reason I expected you to be much older. I was, I said. I mean, my Uncle Harry was going to do this show when they booked it last summer, but I'm filling in for him. I stepped forward, closing the gap between us, and put out my hand. I'm Eli Marks. He returned the handshake like a man new to the concept, but certainly enthusiastic about it. Clive Albans, he said, almost bowing. I was hoping I would have a chance to speak with you either this evening or at some later point for an article I'm doing for the London Times. Sure, I said. What's the article about? I'm doing an expose on charlatan psychics and mentalists, frauds, fakers, freaks, that sort of thing. My understanding was that you, actually your uncle, is a bit legendary in the field of debunking. I'd love to include the perspective of the professional debunker if I could. I bit my tongue deciding I would correct him on the use of the term during the actual interview. Sure, I said. No problem. Brilliant, he said, turning to follow us as we continued toward the main room. The three of us stood in the archway for a moment, marveling at all the costumed attendees, a truly exotic turnout. I heard Clive cluck his tongue loudly as he looked around the room. These people, he said, shaking his head slowly from side to side as he jotted illegibly in a small notebook. They look ridiculous. Pete and I exchanged a glance, but kept our mouths shut. Okay, folks, we're going live in five minutes the smiling television host told the assembled audience from his position near the front of the stage. The host wore his usual get-up, a tweed sport coat with a plaid scarf, but for once the scarf made sense in the crisp, cool, constant 55 degrees of the caves. The floor manager gestured at him, and he looked down at the small stack of index cards in his hand as if he'd forgotten he was holding them. Oh, Yes, he said. I've been asked to remind you of a couple of housekeeping notes. So, how many people here have ever been to the Vatican? You know, the one in Rome? The apparent non-sequitur produced some puzzled looks throughout the crowd. A few audience members raised their hands tentatively. Okay, good, a few of you, the host continued. Well, for the rest of you, when you go to the Vatican and visit the Sistine Chapel, which my wife and I did about five years ago, just stunning, don't miss it, get in line early, that sucker fills up quickly, they tell you the moment you enter the chapel that you're not allowed to touch the walls. Da Vinci or Michelangelo or whoever it was who did all the painting in there, he did the whole thing, walls and ceilings, just stunning. And they don't want you to touch the walls because apparently they don't want the oils from your skin to get on the painting. Wow, he said, unaware that the audience didn't have a clue what he was talking about. 
The same is true here in the caves, but for a slightly different reason. I've been asked to request that you don't touch the walls in here because they're made of sandstone and are very soft. They say that it doesn't take much to damage them, so hands off the walls, he added a laugh to emphasize the point and then flipped through his index cards for his next housekeeping note. Also, be sure to get your questions into the crystal bowl. Where's the bowl? The floor manager gestured toward the bowl, which was at the host's feet. He grinned broadly and pointed at the bowl. Yes, there's the bowl. You need to get your questions for Gray into this bowl before the start of the show. They tell me there's paper, pens, and envelopes up here and also on a table in the back of the room. Is that right? He looked to the floor manager for confirmation, received a quick nod, and continued with his pre-show warm-up. An audio engineer had found me and was in the process of clipping a wireless lavalier microphone to my sport coat. I ran the cord under my shirt and slid the small transmitter he handed me into my back pocket. So, what's going on here tonight? Pete whispered as the TV host cracked some more jokes and gave the audience a few more final instructions. Pete still held the deck of cards in his hands, which he fingered badly in what looked to be his sad attempt at a double lift. The local PBS station is doing a live remote as part of their weekly local news magazine show. It's a special Halloween show, I explained. They got a psychic medium who's going to perform, and then, in the name of fairness or something, they want to bring me on. The voice of the opposition, Clive suggested. Something like that, I agreed. So who's the psychic, Pete asked. That performer named Gray, Clive answered before I could. He double-checked his notes. Yes, that's it, Gray. Pete looked at Clive quizzically. Gray what? Clive shrugged. Just Gray, he said as he paged through his notes. Apparently he goes by only the one name, you know, like Cher, Liberace, Bono. Do you know him? He asked me. Vaguely, I said, and then turned to Pete. You may know him better by his former name. Walter Grabowski? A dim look of recognition crossed Pete's face. Now that you mention it, that does sound familiar. Wasn't he a realtor? For years. Clive tapped me on the shoulder and I answered his question before he could ask it. In Britain, you call them estate agents. He gave me a nod of thanks and continued making notes in his small notepad. And now he's a psychic? Pete asked. If you listen to his version of the truth, he'll tell you that he's always had the gift. But in reality, he was your garden variety realtor for years, and then he started to get the reputation of being, shall we say, friendly to a fringe audience? Friendly to fringe audiences. Interesting, Clive asked. Define, please. Well, if you were a witch or warlock who wanted to mark a property before you bought it by urinating around the circumference of the house, for example, Gray was the type of realtor who would happily look the other way, I explained quietly. Or if you felt the need to perform a nude cleansing of a space before you put in an offer, Gray was your guy. In some instances, I added, I understand he was more than willing to strip down and join in. Then, after a while, he discovered that he could make more money doing readings instead of doing real estate, so he made the switch to the psychic dodge full-time. You can make more money as a psychic than a realtor? Pete asked, his voice cracking as he attempted to whisper. A crew member turned toward us and signaled that less talking would be preferred. I smiled at her, then turned and gave Pete a knowing smile as well. I considered adding a few more words to the topic, but at that moment, the lights began to dim in the cavern as other lights grew brighter on the stage. 
The host looked directly into one of the large video cameras positioned in front of the stage and announced, Yes, folks, we're coming to you live from the Wabashaw Caves. It's Halloween, and we've got a spooky treat for our audience here and for all of you at home. Please put your hands together for the one, the only, Gray. And then, without warning, the lights went out, plunging the room into darkness. And thus ends chapter one of The Ambitious Card. Dun, dun, dun. That was a bit of a cliffhanger. I can't, can't wait to find out what happens next. Well, you're going to have to come back next week for the next episode. I'll be here. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I want to thank Rob Zabrecki for taking the time to talk about skeptics, debunkers, and the ultimate skeptic and debunker, Harry Houdini. You can follow Rob, and I think you should, on his performer page on Facebook at facebook.com slash Zabrecki. And on Instagram at Rob Zabrecki, all one word. Rob also has a, a really terrific YouTube series called The Other Side with Rob Zabrecki, uh, in which he does uh, seances with LA-based celebrities. It's, it's pretty fun. You can also uh, visit Amazon.com or any bookseller to grab his memoir about his previous life in the punk band Possum Dixon. The book is called Strange Cures. And as always, you can find all this information in the show notes, as well as the start in the start time for each of the chapters in case you want to skip us chatting and just go right to the chapter. Uh, we should say thank you to everybody. And uh, we hope to see you next time for chapter two of The Ambitious Card. And make sure uh, you don't miss an episode by hitting that subscribe button. And you know what? Rate us as well. We love fives. Yeah, I was say be kind. Be kind. Yes. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening.